come off of, of Easter, you know, the resurrection of Jesus. Now, that, that's Super Bowl Sunday for the church. You know what I mean? I mean, that is, that is the, the greatest day and week actually approaching that in the Christian calendar of the year is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And sometimes we can, you know, celebrate the resurrection and then go, wow, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. He rose from the dead. He gave me eternal life. That's awesome. Now let's go on. And there's so much more to it. And by, by the way, I, I even hate that phrase, there's so much more to it, because can we all agree, if Jesus died for your sins and rose from the grave and gave you eternal life, that's plenty. Can we just say that's plenty? But God has a desire uh, for us to, to the, the power and privilege that's provided in the cross and it's provided in the resurrection is transformative. It has the power to transform our lives. That's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the cross and the resurrection's transforming power. And so that's, that's where we're heading today. And, and by the way, all of us who, who know Jesus as our Savior, and if you feel like, well, I don't, so I'm not in the clique, we want you in the clique, okay? We want you in the group. Uh, Christianity is not exclusive, it's inclusive. It, we want to invite you in to a relationship with Jesus. If you've never said yes to Jesus, this is your day. In fact, you could pause right now and say, Lord Jesus, I say, yes, I'm yours, and he will answer that prayer. And so God calls us into relationship with him, and he, he desires for our lives to be transformed now on planet Earth. I don't want you to miss that, because there's such sweet promises of heaven that we can come away and go, hey, you know what? One day in the sweet by and by, I'm going to really be a different person. I'm going to really be new. I'm going to really be transformed. But God wants you to have a transformed life right now here on planet Earth. And the power of the cross and the empty tomb gives us the privilege and the workings of God to create that transformation in our lives. In fact, one of, one of Paul, Paul, by the way, was a guy who wrote a big chunk of the New Testament. And you probably hear me say this about every time I mention his name because I never know if there's somebody, this might be your first day in church. And you hear Paul, and you don't know who that is. Well, Paul was a guy who was anti-Jesus until he met the resurrected Jesus. Funny how that'll change your life. And it changed his life, and he became the biggest proponent of Christianity in the known world at that time. And uh, Paul told one of the guys he was training, he was named Timothy, he said, he said, training is, is of great value. And he said, and godliness is profitable. Did you hear that? Godliness is profitable. Catch this next line. Now in this life. Now in this life and in the life to come. So it has a one-two punch. It has transforming power in us now and into the life to come. And for those of you who are studious and like to know, where in the world's that in the Bible? That's in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 4, verse 8. He's training a guy named Timothy, a young boy, to go after God. And God didn't say, I want your life to be transformed. Now try to figure out how to do it, and uh, good luck to you. He gives us enabling power for transformation. <clears throat> we often say the grace is God's undeserved favor. And, and that's a decent definition, but it's also a really great definition for the word mercy. Mercy is undeserved favor. When you don't get what you deserve, that's mercy. And God is very merciful. We see that all throughout Scripture. But God tells, Paul's training another young man named Titus, and he tells this guy named Titus, he said, the grace of God has appeared to everyone, and the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodly, sinful living, and to say yes to righteousness, or let's just call it right living. 
And so we have this thing called the grace of God, which is enabling power in us to do what's right, to say no to sin and yes to right living. So God actually does enable us to walk in transformation and gives us the power to do it. Now, oftentimes when I teach on on our Christian life and growing in Christ, I talk about how we can do that just as we do life. And we don't actually have to carve out three hours every day, you know, to invest in the kingdom. There wouldn't be anything wrong with that. But we can actually grow just as we do life. Most of the things that we can learn, we can practice. You, You can have a prayer life that lasts all day long. You don't have to just pray an hour in the morning. And if you do, I'm not asking you to stop that. That's wonderful. But you can become a person of prayer. You don't have to be good just for 90 minutes on Sunday morning and say, okay, I got that out of my, off my to-do list for the week. We can live in goodness like Jesus did 24-7. So, so much in, in our Christian life is, can just be done as we do life. In fact, even health, if you want to be a healthy person, you can be a healthy person and never go to the gym. Now, for those of you who love the gym, I'm not saying don't go. I'm just saying you can do healthy things. Now, if you want to have a degree of basic health in your life, then you'll eat regularly and healthy. You're going to eat anyway. Did you notice that? You're going to eat anyway. And sometimes we don't always eat healthy. I don't know what Darlene was thinking. She brought this bag of pecan turtles home yesterday. What was she thinking? I asked for something sweet. That is true. But... Until I have total victory, I just need like one, not bag, I need one piece of candy. So anyway, that's okay, honey. So we learn to eat healthy regularly all the time. And then we can do things like we can take the stairs instead of the elevator. We can park in the back of a parking lot and walk and we can work in our yard. We can do things. And you'll, you'll develop a, a, a healthy body by eating healthy and just moving. But if you want to train for something, if you want to run a race, that ain't going to be enough. You're not going to do that and then say, hey, I'm going to run a mini marathon this Saturday and get out there. You'll be, you'll be done in about 100 yards. You know, you'll be, that'll be all you can take of that. You, you don't go to Colorado and, with your family and get up one morning and say, you know what, I, I'm going to take a little walk before breakfast and then come back later and say, I don't know what happened. I, I, I got to the top of Pikes Peak. I just went for a little walk and next thing I knew, no, you're going to train if you're going to do some stuff that requires more than just basic health and energy. And, uh, and we're going to train as believers, too, so I'm not opposed to that. In fact, Paul says it's necessary to really run to win, to really be a competitor and grow spiritually. But most of what I'm going to talk about today is about getting a, an understanding, a mindset of how God looks at us. Now, I'll warn you right up front, it'll blow you away. Every t- I read stuff in the Bible all the time, and I go, I, I don't even know. When I read that I am a co-heir with Jesus... I just want to say, no, Lord, that's not, but then I have to say, yes, Lord, that's what you said. But it's overwhelming. It blows me away to think I'm an heir of God and a co-heir with Jesus Christ. I'm in the family. And he throws me right in there with, with big brother Jesus. And it's just like, wow, that, that's an amazing thing. So when you look at the word, it becomes overwhelming to us sometimes emotionally and mentally how can this be possible but it's true if God said it it's true there's a beautiful little verse that says let God be true and every man a liar and that includes you and me if we're saying something different than what God says I'm going to believe God and I'll call my own emotions 
My own thoughts, if they contradict God's, a lie. I'm going to believe God. So we're going to look at the groundwork of what the cross and the resurrection does to produce transformation in our lives. Let's start out with Colossians 2, 13 and 14. This is all of our condition. You were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us how many of our sins? All of our sins. He forgave us all of our sins. Now, just a little side note, because you may sound and even know what that's talking about. We were all born into sin. We all live in sin. I, I, I can tell you right now, this, the perfect example is the world will tell you, the culture will tell you that we're all inherently good. Not true. We're all inherently bad. And I will prove it to you as I always do every time. It's the perfect illustration. A child. Do you have to train a child to lie? Do you have to train them to be selfish? Do you have to train them to be manipulative? No, it's a natural part of our human nature. We have to train children to be honest, to be truthful, you know, to be self-serving, or not self-serving, but serve others. We have to, it, that takes work because we're born inherently bad, and we, need, we really need a transformation, which is Jesus. So here, we're dead in our transgressions and sins, and the uncircumcision of our flesh. Now you may say, what in the world is that? The Jewish people, the covenant, the sign of the covenant for the Jewish people was circumcision. And so this verse is actually saying this, not only were you dead in sins, you weren't even in the right people group. You were outside of the promises and covenants of God. You weren't in the, the, the in group. But look what happens here. It says, God made us alive in Christ. He forgave all of our sins. He canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He is taking it away, nailing it to the cross. Again, you say, okay, well, what's that mean? God has righteous, right, pure, good, holy laws codes of conduct, ways we should behave, and they're good. We just couldn't keep them. And so every time we broke them, there was a law, we became legally indebted. We broke the law, and it deserved a penalty and a payment. And it condemned us. If you decide this evening that you want to upgrade your electronics in your home, and you break into an electronics store tonight and take $10,000 worth of electronics, there is a law against that. If you get caught, and you probably will, you will be legally indebted. Now, let's pretend for a second that the, the, the law doesn't say you go to jail, but you've got to pay back the $10,000 and a $10,000 fine. They say, that's really nice, but i got 50 bucks. Well, the law doesn't care in that scenario who pays it. A stranger could come by and pay it for you, and you can be freed from that legal indebtedness that stood against you and condemned you. Well, Jesus took everything that stood against us and condemned us and nailed it to the cross and forgave all of our sins and everything that pushed against us, everything that said, you're guilty, you're condemned, Jesus condemned it, and we have freedom. Now, the scary thing about these verses, if these were the only verses we have, is we could come away with the conclusion, oh, then my goodness, God doesn't care how I live. All my sins are forgiven. There's no legal code of conduct against me now. I get to go live however I want. Well, that's not true, which we'll discover, because we need to step into that forgiveness. And let's, let's read on the next verse. 
Where was I? 1 Peter 2.24. 1 Peter 2.24. He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the what? The cross. The cross is incredibly important to everything that goes on in our faith. Paul said this, I come not knowing anything except Jesus Christ and him, does anybody remember? Crucified. That's how important the cross was. Him crucified. And it goes on to say, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. Now again, if that word righteousness is, you, you know, you can't connect with it, and I'm sure this won't cover it all, but right living. We're dead to sin and we're alive to right living. So we can see from this next verse that we're just not free to do whatever we want, however we want. We're supposed to be dead to sin and alive to right living. And by his wounds, you have been healed. We are healed. Romans 6, 10 and 11. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. So there's the cross and the death, and next is the resurrection. But the life he lives, he lives to God. There's two things that's going on that Christ has died once for all. Two things. First of all, he's died once and for all for any kind of sin or penalty. It's done. He's died for it once. He doesn't have to die for it again. If somebody says here today, Tracy, I don't know Jesus. I want to give my life to Jesus. Jesus does not have to die again. He has died once, and he covered all of it. But there's another element that's revealed in Scripture, too, is that he died once for everyone. He died once to, to trample every sin, but he also died once for every person. So you have been paid for by the blood of Christ. Now, again, we could say, well, then everybody's okay. I, I want to explain this to you because Paul, who wrote a big chunk of this stuff, said to a group of Christians, he said, not only are our sins paid for, but the sins of the whole world. Listen to me carefully. I think there's around 8 billion people on planet Earth right now. Every one of them, their sins have been paid for. Every one of them are forgiven. Every one of them have a potential for eternal life. Now, I want to explain this to you because, and it wouldn't bother me if, if everyone was in, but I'm just telling you what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that we are to be reconciled to God and that God holds out, you might have heard this term before, an olive branch. It means it, uh, an opportunity for peace. He holds out an olive branch. He holds out an invitation to everyone to come into this relationship. I had someone talking to me about, I think, though, know, everybody's sins are paid for. I said, they are. But, but pay attention to everything the Bible says because the Bible talks about having the whole counsel of God. If everybody was in right now and didn't need to do anything else, that Jesus had saved everyone regardless, then there's all kinds of problems with the Scripture. One, Paul said this. He said, if my fellow Israelites would give their lives to Jesus and get saved, I would give my life to eternal damnation in exchange for that. You don't say that if everybody's in. Why didn't Jesus look at the other thief on the cross who was cursing him and say, oh, by the way, you too shall be with me today in paradise. I mean, there's, there's, this, there's this, this gift that's being offered, but you can reject it. I'm sure I've told this story before. I was about four years old. I remember a lot of things, honestly, when I was three or four years old. I was about four years old. And uh, in one side of our family, there was an uncle who was angry at everyone. 
Well, my mother and father wanted to be peacemakers, and it was his birthday. And uh, my mom baked him a birthday cake and decorated it all up nice and sent dad with me. Now, on hindsight, I'm serious about this. I figured he thought, well, surely a little four-year-old will tenderize this uncle's heart. You know, he won't be too mean with, you know, with the little kid there. Well, they were wrong. Uh, He told my dad that he could take that cake and get off his property, and he wanted nothing to do with him or any of the family. Now, what happened? A olive branch was handed out. Uh, a, A reconciliation was handed out. A a potential for restoration was handed out, and it was rejected. God's baked everyone on the planet a beautiful birthday cake and delivering it to you. Now, you can say, get off my property, I don't want it. Or you can say, thank you, let's have a piece of cake. And you can be restored in relationships. So there is this part that we step into this relationship that Jesus invites us into. So there is that responsibility. And then it goes on to say, in the same way, I want you, me, you, I want us, that we should count ourselves, consider ourselves, reckon ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So there's this, you'll, you'll find all throughout the New Testament that the word dead or death and sin are often used in the same sentence because sin produces death. It all, you, you, you and I who love Jesus, we do sinful things. It produces death, at least in that little area of our life. It will produce some area of death. You will not thrive in that area, and that's why God, who's so into life, tells us here's how you ought to do life if you want to really live it to the fullest measure. And Jesus said, I came so you could do that. Now, here's some mind-blowing verses. We've looked at the cross, and in those was also dabbled the resurrection. But here is some mind-blowing verses in, in Ephesians. There was another church, a guy named Paul again, who planted this church in, a, a, at that time, it was a port city, but long since it's, I forget, it's like four or five miles away from the sea now, but at that time it was a major port city uh, in Ephesus. And so he's planted a church there, and he's talking to these these Ephesian believers, these Gentile believers, which is what we are. We're probably, most people in this room are not a Jewish believer, not a Jew who's come to know Jesus. We're probably all Gentiles and uh, who have come to know Jesus. And he's telling these people, he's saying this, he said, I've got three specific things that I really want you to get. And he said, and they're so mind-blowing. They're so incredible. They're so beyond your human ability to grasp it and believe it, that I've actually prayed and asked the Holy Spirit to enlighten you. I've asked the Holy Spirit to give you the ability to understand, to enlighten your understanding so you might know, and he lists three things. We're going to skip the first two. And you go, what? You can read the whole thing. You all got a Bible, don't you? You can read the whole thing later, not right now. But we're picking up on the third one. And he said, I, I can't teach this fully. The Holy Spirit will have to help. You'll have to have an understanding from the Holy Spirit. And he says, and one of the things I want him to show you is his incomparably great power for us who believe. His incomparably great power for us who believe. If we say, well, what kind of power is that? That power is the same as his mighty strength, which he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead 
and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Now, first of all, it's a huge deal just for somebody that's been three days dead to come back to life. But it's a super huge deal for Jesus because I can tell you, as far as what we know from Scripture, that every, uh, every dimension of power that we can think of wanted to keep him in the grave. The Roman Empire wanted him in the grave, the most powerful empire on the planet at that moment. They sealed the stone with the royal insignia so it couldn't be removed or rolled away. They posted guards. The, uh, the Jewish church, now many, by the way, we, the Jewish people get a bad news, but many of them came to know Jesus. The thousands of people that got saved at Pentecost were Jews. So I want you to know that in case you think, no one in the Jewish religion wanted to know Jesus. Many priests received Jesus as their savior, so they weren't totally abandoning this. But that particular group said, we need to make sure that he stays in that tomb because his believers have said he's going to rise from the dead. We want to make sure that there's not a, a, a hoax that does that. Then, of course, would you not agree that Satan and every power of darkness wanted to keep him in the grave? And physical science said you're going to stay in the grave. You're three days dead. You haven't had a brain wave or your organs haven't worked for three days. But death couldn't hold him. God exerted power, the same power that's at work for those of us who believe. This is what the Bible says. I pray that the Holy Spirit helps me and you get this. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realm, Jesus is seated far above, verse 21, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, you think you might have some name you're going to call on, it's not going to be higher than the name of Jesus, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. Paul's saying, I want to cover all the bases here. He's raised up. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's far above all rule, power, authority, dominion, any name you think you can name. And by the way, not just for now, but forever. And so he's covering it all. Now, every time we go to this verse, which is with some regularity, we look at chapter 2, because if we stop there, we'll come away saying, you know, hip, hip, hooray for Jesus. You know, that's wonderful for him, but what about us? Well, what about us is in Ephesians chapter 2. Because of his great love for us, God who is rich in what? Mercy. You and I aren't getting what we deserve. Thank the Lord. He's rich in mercy. He made us alive in Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. Is by grace you have been saved. And here's the one I want to connect those two. And God raised, what's the next word? God raised us. Maybe we just ought to say it and it wouldn't be perverting the scriptures, God raised me. God raised me up with Christ and seated me with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. Now, you and I have no problem whatsoever saying Jesus is far above everything. Absolutely. Nothing can touch Jesus. That's right. His name's above every name. He has power and authority over any power authority. He's... Capital G God over any little G God. He's head over everything. And we go, yes, yes, yes. And we all agree, and we smile, and we amen, and we feel confident about that until we throw in, and we're seated right with him with the same positional power. Ah, uh, well, oh, you do not know how I behaved on the way to church today, or you would not be saying that. Well, what's God say? What does God say? He says all your sins are forgiven. Now, does that cover 
two hours ago? Two minutes ago? Surely you were behaving two minutes ago, weren't you? I hope. I, I hope so. But all those things. So we look at the scripture, and I believe that's why we need the Holy Spirit. Help us, enlighten us, give us understanding, help, help the eyes of our understanding to be enlightened, that we might know the hope to which we are called is glorious inheritance in the saints and is incomparably great power for those of us who believe. So, our sins are forgiven. The law that stood against me and condemned me has been nailed to the cross. I'm dead to sin and alive to right living. I've been raised up with Christ. I'm seated with him in the heavenly realms. I'm seated with him in a position of power. Jesus is above anything and anyone. I'm seated with him. Then I'm above anything and anyone with him. Hmm. I'm seated, and you are too. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are seated in a place of power and victory. You're seated in a place of power and victory. That's not something I'm making up. That's what God says. And that's why Paul was saying, the Holy Spirit's going to have to help you get this because this will blow you away. And it will. Far above. But how can we put this transformation into action in our lives? Remember that our transformation almost always deals with some sin we're holding on to. I mean, do you, do you ever think, I need a transformation from my kindness? No. I need a transformation. I'm just, I'm, I'm too nice. I'm too generous. I'm, I'm too prayerful. You know, I just need, I need transformed from my prayerfulness or my sinlessness. No, we're always needing a transformation from what? From some kind of sin that we're dealing with, from something that we're, we're struggling with. I mean, it could be laziness. It could be immorality. It could be unforgiveness. It could be buying into this world's culture of what they say is right and wrong and not what God says. It could be anger. It could be not taking care of our bodies, this incredible gift that God gave us. You know, I was thinking about that. We, we oftentimes, I understand we age. I, I do get that. I do understand the natural process of aging. Like when I walked, we, we were in our garage the other day, and there was like this 18-year-old, not jogging by, running by. And I went, quick, quick, look, honey, but you've got to look fast to catch this guy. And he's blowing through. I said, man, I'd like to have those young legs again, you know, because I do understand, you know, we do age a little bit, but... A lot of our problems are self-inflicted. You know, I know this is hard to believe, but I'm a little heavier than I was when I graduated high school. And um, if someone hurts me when you all laugh when I say that, I don't know. I know it's, it's a tender spot there. Well, no one wants to think that's our fault. So I remember I was talking to the doctor one time. I said, hey, you know what? I mean, I graduated at this particular weight, and here's what I weigh now. I said, do you think maybe I... I have an overactive thyroid. And um, he said, no, he said, I think you have a, a, an overactive fork. And I thought, oh, okay, that, I, think, I think you nailed it. I got an overactive knife, fork, and spoon. You got to watch out for that. But some things we say, you know, I need some help from. In fact, we can joke about it, but really we should take care of our bodies. And we should, you know, do what we can for health. But we've got to get these truths that we looked at in the Word today and get them lodged and buried deep in us. They have to become more than a Bible story. They have to become truth that gets embedded in us. And, and that's why James said, if you just hear the Word 
and you don't do it, you don't put it into practice, you'll be deceived. You'll think, I already know that. But the telltale sign that you and I know something is, are we living it and doing it? That's the telltale sign. And so we do have to have information, but information hopefully brings some, trans- or some, some inspiration and some motivation, but then it needs to bring some activation. If we, don't, if we get information without activation, we just get stuck there. But information with activation creates transformation. That's what transforms our lives. We start putting into practice what we've learned, but we first have to believe it up here. If I don't believe that all my sins are forgiven, if I don't believe that I live in a place of victory and power, if I don't believe that the same power that exerted Christ when he raised him from the dead dwells and is at work for me, if I don't believe that all the legal codes that condemned me and stood against me have been canceled by the cross, if I don't believe that I am in Christ and I'm a new creation, the old is gone, the new has come, if I don't believe that Jesus made me the righteousness of God in Christ, by the way, everything I've quoted to you right there is Bible verses, or Bible verses, then I'm going to live far substandard to where I should. If I believe that my only thing I can do is sin, then I'm going to sin. But if I believe that I am the righteousness of God in Christ, then there's hope for me to live on a higher level. Now here's some interesting verses as we move towards a close. Hebrews 12, 1 through 4, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Now, the King James says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. So what I wanted to bring out at this point is not everything's sin. Some things are just weights. They're unprofitable for you. At one point, Paul said, everything's possible for me, but not everything's profitable for me. So I'm going to focus on things that are profitable, things that bring fruitfulness and growth to my life, and I'm going to lay aside things that are not profitable. So it says, let us throw off everything that hinders, the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author or pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Then we learn this about Jesus, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He didn't like the cross. He didn't enjoy the cross. He endured the cross. He scorned its shame. We never show it, but, but people were crucified on crosses naked. They were, they were nude. They were, it was a public shaming and humiliation. He scorned its shame. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And then we're told, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. We don't have near the persecution. We may have one day, but we don't have near the persecution that you'll see when you read the book of Acts or you watch the story and life of Jesus through the scriptures. And so you and I oftentimes, we let our light shine for Jesus and, and then somebody says, man, I don't want to hear any of those Bible thumping stories of yours. And you go, I've been so persecuted. I, I've just, and you know what? When, when you think that you've been really abused because somebody said, I really don't want to hear your Bible stories, then consider Jesus. Consider Jesus who endured such horrible things at the hands of sinners, was murdered and beaten and crucified so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Then it says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, which is true. Most of us are very pampered in our life of, of sharing Christ. The worst we generally get is maybe a a rude comment and here 
they lost their lives for it. See, those who are competing in sports, especially if there's long-distance things. And by the way, the Christian life is a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. And literally, in the old days where these verses were written, stuff like this in Scripture, where they still had Olympic games that went on, you would see a marathon path strewn with clothes, and people may cross the line naked because they stripped off anything that would slow them down. Now, you may not think it weighs much, and by the way, I do not know this from experience. I only know this from hearing people and reading about it, that you put on a heavy watch and you run a marathon, when you get a little ways into that marathon, that watch feels like you got a brick wrapped around it. It gets incredibly heavy. Again, don't know that from experience, but from what I've heard. So in, in races, I mean, a marathon runner wants their clothes to be as light as possible. Shoes for a marathon runner. They want them to be effective, but guess what? As light as possible. You don't see somebody who's serious about competing getting to the starting line of a marathon and they're chained up like Mr. T, if you remember Mr. T, wearing 10 pounds of gold because that will feel like it weighs about 300 pounds a mile or two into the race. They're, they're, they're laying aside all the weight, anything that would hinder. If they are wearing a watch, it's a watch that's designed for long-distance running that's very light and has some benefit to help them win the race, not just as a piece of jewelry. So they're laying aside anything that would hinder. So what can we do to run a spiritual race? Paul said, I train myself to run a race to win. Well, here's how to run to win. Lay aside lies, doubts, and unbelief. And you'll have to get tenacious at it because we all have our own little lies, our own little doubts, our own little uh, areas of unbelief that we'll have to get tenacious. And number two will go with that. Think the truth of Scripture. You need to know what's lie and what's truth. God's word is truth. God's word is forever settled in heaven. What does God's word say? When, when you believe that you're a good-for-nothing you have to say, I need to substantiate that from Scripture. And when you find Scripture, the Bible will say that God thinks you're the apple of his eye, that you're fearfully and wonderfully made, that he thinks about you all the time. These are all Bible verses. He thinks about you all the time. And if you can number his, his thoughts, they'd be as vast as the sands of the sea. And all of them, you ready to get blown away, are good. Can you believe that God has thoughts about us all the time they're as numerous as the sands on a seashore and they're all good that's what God says so I need to think what God says not what my emotions say then I want to encourage you verse 3 expect the struggle now somebody might say well that's negative well it's biblical we just read it in your struggle against sin if you're saying to me today I have no struggle then you've given up and you're just floating along with your sin. You've, you've made a pal with it. You've decided, I'm just this, I'm just going to live with it. Now, we hang on to sin because we like it. Or we hang on to sin because it becomes normal. And to not do the sin feels awkward and odd and abnormal. But we want victory over sin because you know this. It is robbing you of life in some way. And so expect the struggle. Don't get shocked like, well, I said I wasn't going to do this and now I feel like doing it. Well, expect the struggle and move on to victory. Fourth thing, consider Jesus just as we were taught. And the fifth thing, focus on freedom 
not just on the fight. Now, I encourage you to know how to fight as a believer. Ephesians 6, the whole armor of God. I want you to know what our warfare is, and I want you to be a good soldier. But I don't want you to focus on the fight. I want you to focus on the victory. That's what Jesus did. We're supposed to consider Jesus. Jesus, what? Who for the joy set before him, he looked down the road. The joy set before him, he endured the cross and despised its shame. Now, I want to ask quickly, is there anybody here who, who has run a marathon? You know, don't lie to me either. Okay, anybody run a marathon? Jim Burden? You say, oh, no, he doesn't have his hand up. He was, I was just kidding. You've run a marathon? Anybody run a half marathon? Okay, a few people. Has anybody ever run here? Just, I mean, any, anywhere. I mean, that's, okay, okay. So we all have at least ran at some point or another. When, when you're running, you're focusing on the end. Now, even if you're a marathon runner and you're saying, I'm not, I, I don't even have any fallacy that I'm going to win this thing. You know what you have? You want to finish. That's your win is the finish. And so when you're, you know, on mile seven and you're thinking, why am I doing here? This is ridiculous. This is crazy. You go, no, no, I'm going to finish. And then you get to mile 12 or mile 15 or wherever, then you, they, they claim that you can get in a rhythm and you don't even notice it. I, again, I'm not speaking from experience, but they claim that that's out there, that you get to a place. But your goal may not be, I'm going to be the first one to cross the line, but I'm going to cross the line and you focus on the goal. You focus on the end result. So you plow through the cramp in your leg, the blister on your foot, the, the, your body screaming you're a crazy person. What are you doing? Because you have a goal. When we want victory over sin, when we want to move forward in our life with God, the devil, your flesh, your habit pad, are all going to scream, stop, 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 stop. This is crazy. What are you doing this for? And you say, because I got my eye on the prize. Because I got my eye on the joy set before me. That's what I'm focusing on. So I want us to allow the victory that is ours through the cross and through the resurrection. I want that to be a reality in our lives, not just a Bible lesson, but a reality. And let's go out and fight the good, fight the faith every day. Well, what if I lose sometimes? You know, and I'm really not trying to be negative, but I'm going to tell you, it's not what if you lose sometimes. You're going to lose sometimes. And I, I, I even hate to say that because I'm like a super positive person. I hate to say that. But I always crack up with John who writes... My brothers and sisters, I write these things so you will not sin. His next line. But if you do sin, <laughs> I always crack up with that. <laughs> yeah. you, you know yourself and you know humanity, but if you do sin, we have an advocate before the Father, a high priest, Jesus, who ever lives to make intercession for us. So we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to help us to move forward in our walks with God and that the reality and the privilege and the power of the cross and the resurrection would be planted in our lives for transformation.